Welcome to Story Shaped, the podcast about the stories that shape us and have the power to change the world. I'm Susan Cahill, debut children's author, and my co-host is the seasoned and wonderful children's author Sinead O'Hart. Together, we'll be taking you through some deep dives into the books that shaped us and interviewing other writers about their favourite and most influential stories. We hope you'll enjoy Story Shaped. Hello, lovely story shaped folks. Today we are delighted to welcome the wonderful Debbie Thomas, author of six fantastic middle grade books Monkey Business, Jungle Tangle, Dead Hairy, Class Acts, My Secret Dragon, all, I mean, all brilliant titles, and her most recent Chameleon Dad, which actually I've just finished reading. And let me tell you, I could not put it down. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit obsessed with first lines and Chameleon Dad got me from the very beginning. And actually, I'm just going to read the opening lines. So you, listener, too, will have to read the book if this hooks you as much as it did me. So here's the opening of Chameleon Dad. Connie was choosing her dad. She'd narrowed him down to two. And I, I, it's brilliant. There's so much mystery in those opening lines and the pace, it doesn't let up. It's a brilliant story about family, memory, painful emotions, and just what it is that makes a person. Not to mention some dinosaurs and chameleons thrown in for good measure. Debbie also trained as B a BBC journalist and worked for 10 years in Bangladesh and South Africa as a development journalist for aid agencies and newspapers. And you can tell from her novels that this expansive experience enriches all the stories she tells. She's also the writer in residence at Crumlin Children's Hospital and runs creative writing workshops with children in direct provision and for refugees. And we are extremely excited to chat to Debbie today about all the ways in which she is shaped of all kinds of stories. So welcome, Debbie. And hello, Sinead. Hello, Susan, and welcome, Debbie. Thank you very so much. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. It's fabulous to be here. Thank you. <laughs> Shall we start with our... Should we start with that question that we ask everybody? <laughs> Debbie Thomas, are yeah. you story shaped? <laughs> well, funny you should ask that. <laughs> I thought you might be starting. So, and I think the answer is a most definite and resounding yes. Um, and in many ways, it's such a good question. My goodness, there are so many ways to approach this. So, yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, and I suppose um, I'm shaped by the stories I've read which have been enormously influential to me. I'm shaped by stories every day of my life as I go around doing my business, talking to people, encountering different experiences and all that kind of thing. Um, I'm shaped by other people's stories around me, um, family and friends. My own family history has obviously shaped me a lot like it does everybody. Um, and then I started thinking, well, what shape actually is a story? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Mm, I thought that was a really interesting one. And I can tell you what shape my stories are. <laughs> okay, so um, I find when I sit down to write a story, I think of the, the island of Ireland. So, so I usually find I've got a beginning and an end. And sometimes they can be, if I dare say so, spectacular and exciting. They are to me anyway. <laughs> uh, and so it's like a really rugged, exciting, amazing coastline. 
And then I get into the soggy, boggy middle. <laughs> very good. That's brilliant. I love that. So there you go. That's oh, the way Ireland is. Yeah. <laughs> but I oh, think, God, I mean, I get out the edges and soggy in the middle. <laughs> yes. Sorry, I love it. A nice bit of fog to win through. Yeah, but I think, I mean, aren't we all story shaped? Would you, would you agree? Yeah, I think yeah, so. And absolutely. I think our experience yes. of talking to people is... And, and I, I just one of the things I love about all of the interviews that we've done is everyone is so beautifully, uniquely story shaped. Yes, absolutely. That's it, isn't it? Even if the same books or the same stories are shaped different people, they all respond to them in different ways, you know, and they can have different shaping effects on a person's life. And that's why I just it's such a it's just a, it's such a fascinating thing to talk about with people, you know, this, when they think about it deeply, because I don't know, maybe it's not even a conscious thing. People kind of just, you know, they arrive at the point they're, they're at in their life where they've made whatever art they've made and they don't consciously think about how much of an effect the stories they they read as kids or, or at an earlier point in their life have had an effect on them until they until they really sit and think about it for something like this and uh, I just love I love getting people to do that I love the feeling that Susan and I have asked them to think about this which really gives them this appreciation for wow yeah actually that book I loved when I was 10 really has had an effect on me and I just think yes. it's, a, it's a great honor it's a great privilege to be here to talk about these things um and I think they're really important so yeah for sure. Absolutely. Because <laughs> you can see that glint in people's eyes when yep. they start talking yes. about the stories that they've loved. And I think that's I, I I enjoy that so much, just seeing their whole face and body light up by by memories of these stories. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a real privilege. We don't really get to do this very much. And and I mean, the, the other thing I was thinking of that actually we are walking stories, aren't we? We are stories ourselves. And we have our beginning and our middle and our, and our mm. end. And actually, just what you're saying there about, you know, the stories that we take in as a child, um, are that that's our beginning. And that can often sort of send us off in, in various directions in our lives. So they are so formative and so important as well. And something else about stories that I find really um, fascinating as well. I mean, I go around to schools a lot and I do loads of work with kids and workshops on creative writing and all that sort of thing and one of one of the um, first questions I often ask is who likes reading and usually most people put up their hand some of them because they really do some of them because they think they should but every now and then I get people who don't put up their hands so then I say who doesn't like reading and a few brave people do would would then raise their hand and my heart really goes out to them I really admire them for admitting that um, but then I go on to say, you may not like reading and writing, but I bet you love stories because I really do believe that every single human being is part of being human, isn't it? There's that quotation. Um, I think it's an old Jewish quotation. God made man because he loves stories. So <laughs> we are stories. We live in stories. Another great quotation. I wish I'd thought of this one. Something about um, stories are to humans like water are to fish. I mean, that's what we are. You know, when you think of cave paintings and, you know, from the very first humans, there have always been stories. And, and I can see with kids that it almost feels like a huge relief to them to think that it doesn't have to be through reading and writing. That, that would be my medium. I mean, that's what I've always loved. But, you know, whether it's a movie or even a video game or a, a dance or a song, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, I love that. And whenever I do events, too, I always I try to bring that in that it, like some people don't chime with words on a page I mean that's totally yeah. okay because stories take so many shapes you know and I say 
playing a video game, you're telling yourself a story or you're involving yourself in a story, watching a movie, um, you know, reading a graphic novel, if that's what you prefer, you know, anything. There's so many different ways that you can engage with stories. And I completely 100% um, agree with you there, Debbie, that we've been telling stories as a species, I think, since the first moment we arrived on the planet or the first moment we could first put a mark on a wall in the cave that, you know, that was yeah. the beginning of it. And we're continuing to this day. So for sure, it's, it's such a powerful thing. And I think something that's really sad is that, well, yeah, that can be a very sad thing is that sometimes kids struggle with the technical side of it. They struggle with writing, they struggle with reading, and it really puts them off at an early stage. But that story is something completely different from all that. And it's something I've had to learn as well that, you know, I used to love writing at school and I used to love creative writing and playing with words and poetry and using wonderful words and all this kind of thing. That is such a different skill from storytelling. And I know people who can hardly string a sentence together, but when they do, it's the most amazing story, you know, and that's a completely different thing, I think. Yeah, so that storytelling is something that's it's really natural to us as humans. Yes. I think I think there's a book um, by an evolutionary psychologist, I think, called The Storytelling Animal. I know all it about well, this. Yes. You know that book. I can't yes. remember the name of the author. Jonathan Got Gotch Gottlieb yes. or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it's a wonderful book. Mm. And there's another book. Sorry, I'm I'm banging on about books already. Is that okay? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> there is one fantastic book on storytelling. I don't know if you've come across it. It's called The Seven Basic Plots. Oh, Have yes. Yeah. My goodness. By Christopher Booker. It's magnificent. And apparently it took him 34 years to write. And he does a whole trawl through the world's stories. So he's not just looking at Western storytelling. He looks at Chinese, South American, you name it. And he looks at the common threads and the archetypes and he talks about how, you know, the human brain responds to um, story. And actually, it's kind of in quite a limited way in one way. Um, and there's a very good I think actually it's in the storytelling animal, a very good analogy for that. When you when you think that there are only certain types of story, you might feel that's limiting. But in 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 that book, The Storytelling Animal, it says Think of the human face. You know, we all have two eyes, a nose and a mouth. So how boring is that? But every face is different. So it actually, the, the framework provides enormous scope for creativity. That's a lovely so, analogy. Yeah. yeah. Actually, on this topic, there's another brilliant book called The Science of Storytelling by Will Storr. Okay. Because, that yeah, that's wonderful because he goes into like neuroscience behind like why how we tell stories and why we tell stories and what kind of stories our brain is wired to respond to it's brilliant wow fantastic wonderful there's also a wonderful ted talk actually by i don't know if you could come across it by andrew stanton who no. wrote as opposed to andy stanton who wrote the <laughs> gum andrew stanton who wrote finding nemo Oh, and great. he talks about storytelling. It's very short, but he he says stories are really jokes. And so you build up, you have your build up of tension. And then, you know, the timing is everything. Then you have your punchline at the end. You know, that he, he sort of elaborates on that a bit, but it's really fascinating. Mm, OK, we will. We'll link to all of those in our show notes. Wonderful. And I'm, I'm trying to think of the title of this book now for the last few minutes and I can't remember, but I am I have one on my shelf by Ursula Le Guin, who, who's a goddess to me. All the books we've mentioned so far have been by men, which is fine. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh, it's like they have. I feel so <laughs> Ursula Le Guin needs to be mentioned here. I, I just cannot remember. Yeah, it's something like steering, um, steering the Craft? Steering the Craft. Yeah, Thank you, Susan. Ah. Steering the Craft. That's one. Yeah. Very that's a brilliant book. It's all about story. Yeah. yeah. 
wonderful. So these these are all books about shaping stories. But yes. what, Debbie, what stories do you remember from your earliest days that shaped you? Sure. So, well, there are so many. So I had to make a long, long list and then I had to make it a slightly shorter list because <laughs> I thought we haven't got all day. So many, many, many. Um, so first of all, perhaps one of the first ones is Harry the Dog Stories. I don't know if you know those. There we go. No. Oh, the those, you can't see the picture I'm holding up yet. <laughs> I don't know that book at all. Who's the author? So, so Harry, uh, he's called Jean Zion. I'm afraid it's another man. But anyway, you can pretend it's J-E-A-N. It's G-E-N-E. Anyway. <laughs> and the reason I love Harry, well, I just love the stories when I was really, really young and a really startling memory for me was I, I remember the books must have been read to me and I looked at the pictures of this spotty dog and I thought it was all fiction you know I thought this is amazing imagine if there were spotty dogs in the world <laughs> and then one day I was walking down the road and a Dalmatian walked past well I can't tell you <laughs> I oh. couldn't believe it that actually you know fiction was fact oh, so wow. and I think that that's so a really cute. interesting thing um as young children as well, the blurring between fiction and fact. I remember another incident when I was on, on holiday with my mum and dad and we were staying in a caravan and every morning my dad would take me along um, into the little village to buy um, uh, sort of rolls for breakfast, fresh rolls for breakfast. And don't ask me how this happened, but we walked past this lovely little cottage. I remember it, I can see it now on my left with little roses and a lovely little path in front of it and I decided that a witch must live in that cottage a really, really terrible witch and I remember not being able to say anything to my dad because I knew at one level it was stupid and I knew at one level that there weren't you know these witches in pointy hats going around the place um, with magical powers but on another level it was so true and so terrifying and not communicating it made it worse it was almost like, you know, a pressure cooker with the lid being the the, the terror bubbling underneath and, and the lid about to pop open. So, yeah, that whole sort of interplay between fact and fiction. And I think I think that influence influences me quite a lot in my work as well. I love that boundary line, for example. So so my previous book to the latest one was My Secret Dragon. And, and, and it started with a kind of imagining. Imagine if you know dragons did exist once and they so so somebody could have the genes of a dragon or some of the genes of a dragon and be alive today and we don't know it and they look normal and they exist in the real world how would people react so it's really a story about prejudice and difference mm. so yeah so I think I think that blurring is very interesting it's a great concept for a story too. It is. Really, that's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, it's and it's. I suppose it's happening in Chameleon Dad as well because Connie is, yes, like she's telling herself. There's the stories are constantly changing. Like yes. she's told herself a particular story, and then something happens to shift that story, and so she's constantly having to reevaluate the yeah that that boundary between fact and fiction. Completely, that's so true. And actually, Chameleon Dad, there are many different threads to it. But what it really is, what it really is, is a story about the stories we tell ourselves. So there are many elements to it. So there's, it's the story of Connie, who's, um, she hasn't seen her dad, she's 12 years old, and she hasn't seen her dad since she was four. And she has a memory of sitting in a cafe in Dublin airport with her dad. He gets up, he got up to buy her a 
cup of hot chocolate, walked away towards the cafe and never came back. And she never sees, she ne she's never seen him again. She, so it's now eight years later, she's 12 years old. And obviously she's thinking, what could have happened to my father? Um, and the strangest thing of all was that he left a box on the table and inside the box was a chameleon. So she has all of these questions. She thinks her dad must be dead, um, but then a letter arrives and she sets on a path to, dis to track him down, to discover what happens and to ask him all these questions. But along the way, there, it, there, there's lots of sort of themes tied in with the stories we tell ourselves. So first of all, she meets a fossil hunting family. And I'm fascinated by the idea of fossils being little pinpoints mm. in the earth. Mm. They're almost like the memory of the earth. Oh, that's so lovely. You find a bone here, a skull here, a claw here, and you have to piece them all together, arrange them all to reconstruct a dinosaur. We have no idea really about the dinosaurs. I mean, we, we all have an image in our head of what a dinosaur looked like, but we don't really know. So just beside me, sorry, it's like my <laughs> little dinosaur sticker. My son's yes. dinosaur sticker was just suddenly appeared beside me, weirdly. <laughs> Fantastic. And and it's bright blue with a yeah. green back, which we all know dinosaurs have bright blue skin. <laughs> so there's so much imagination involved in that. Then there's the, her own memories of her father that she's trying to join the dots, so to speak, to make a coherent story of what happened. And I'm very aware in myself as I get older that I have these really vivid pinpoints of memory. And then sometimes I can check out those memories, perhaps by talking to my sister about my, something from my childhood or even seeing a picture or something. And I realized I was wrong. Something I could swear by that her coat was green and it wasn't, it was bright pink. You know, so these stories we tell ourselves and then there's the and then there's the sort of biggest story, the whole idea of prejudice and stereotyping. So we form these snap judgments about people and we have no idea. And I use this a lot in schools when I when I talk to kids, I say that maybe, you know, you come into school one day and someone's really grumpy with you and you jump to conclusions. You think, oh, that person doesn't like me or I've done something to upset that person. When actually the truth is they didn't eat their breakfast or they slept badly or they had an argument with their brother, you know, and I just think we've got to be so careful about this. And of course, the ultimate example of that is racism or any any discrimination that we are making assumptions about people from the way they look, the way they sound, you know, and that enrages me. Having said that, I know I do it all the time, you know, so yeah but that's a that's a brilliant example of the way in which we live in and through stories yes that's right we really do i mean all the time and we're not even aware of it i think half the time yes yeah. maybe maybe that's a bad side like i'm not saying there's a bad side to stories as such but like you know the downside maybe to living within stories maybe is that you know we tell each other we tell ourselves a story about particular kind of person and then you know that's what that's what we believe or maybe it's what we pass on to our own kids or whatever it can be it can be a hard thing to break out of which is why I think stories like yours Debbie and stories like you know anybody who creates stories to try to 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 retell these archetypes I guess you know you know they're they're really really important really vital um for helping yeah. us to see see other people as 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 the same as us you know for helping us to um to spark our own empathy absolutely um, there's yeah. another brilliant quotation that I always use with children um you can't hate someone whose story you know I think oh, that's yeah, so very good. That's brilliant, empowering yeah. and yeah, challenging yeah. at the same time. Yeah. It's wonderful. I've got a few more books. Could I could I yes, tell you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've got to get go onto my, 
I've got to get on to my all-time favourite, but I'll, <laughs> I'll whisper a few others. So I loved um, Flat Stanley. Did you ever read? Flat I've never Stanley? read Flat Stanley. I know oh, it's I know it's really culturally oh. important, but I've, it's one I've never read, which I, it's a shame. Story. And it's so funny and so quietly sort of tongue-in-cheek, wry and gentle humour. It's beautiful. The Brilliant. King of the Copper Mountains. Have you ever heard of that one? I've heard of that, but I have not, not read that it. Well known. Again, a really beautiful book, actually about stories. It's about a, a, an ancient king, who, a much-loved king, who is dying in the Copper Mountains. And the only thing that's going to keep him alive is stories. So animals hear this around the land, and they all come and visit him with their own special story. While the, while the wonder doctor is um, traveling far, far away to find the golden speedwell, which is the plant that's going to heal the king. It is absolutely beautiful. That oh story. my God, I, that sounds like something I would have loved as a child. I would have absolutely adored that as a kid. That's amazing. I'm going to look it up straight away and see can I get a copy. Very beautiful. Then my naughty little sister stories. Uh, oh, yeah. Because I was so good and I hated <laughs> being good. <laughs> and that was the naughty person inside me being given permission to come out. Um, <laughs> and... <laughs> All fairy tales, magnificent. I mean, who doesn't love a fairy tale? Goodness yeah. me. Um, the Narnia series, I absolutely adored, as many people do. And there, there's one little bit from that. My favourite book. Do you have a favourite Narnia story? Once I think my favourite is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Okay. And I love The Magician's Nephew as well. Yeah. I love The Magician's Nephew. That's my favourite. What yeah. about you, Sinead? Um, I think just I, I don't I the line the witch in the wardrobe I don't I don't know why I think probably the Dawn Treader probably is a better book actually now you think about it Susan so yeah but uh, right. I do I love those as well yeah right I did love I have to say I love the magician's nephew because it sort of explained everything and the whole dawn it of did, Narnia yeah. and all that kind of yeah. thing yeah. and one of my favorite characters in any children's book ever is Uncle Andrew and I actually have a little bit that I'd love to read would that be okay yes absolutely please. go for Between it Diggory, who's the hero of um, The Magician's Nephew, and his uncle Andrew. Um, so Uncle Andrew, what does he do? He's telling Diggory how he was given a secret box and he was told not to open it and he promised to burn it. But of course, he didn't keep the promise and he opened it. So Diggory says, that was jolly rotten of you, said Diggory. Excuse the sort of ancient language here. <laughs> rotten, said Uncle Andrew with a puzzled look. Oh, I see. You mean that little boys ought to keep their promises. Very true. Most right and proper, I'm sure. And I'm very glad you've been taught to do it. But of course, you must understand that rules of that sort, however excellent they may be for little boys and servants and women, and even people in general, can't possibly be expected to apply to profound students and great thinkers and sages. No degree. Men like me who possess hidden wisdom are freed from common rules, just as we are cut off from common pleasures. <laughs> Ours, my boy, is a high and lonely destiny. I just think that's such a great character. It's so funny. There are certain politicians around. Oh, yes. Today, in, in a certain country who shall remain nameless. I have one in my head right now that I'm thinking that absolutely sums yeah. <laughs> This sort of, say you nothing, know, just in case. exceptionalism, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful character. But <laughs> Roald Dahl, I loved all of Roald Dahl, all that he'd written all those years ago. Um, 
but my very, very, very top of the tree, which I've mentioned to you before, is the Phantom Tollbooth. Oh, we're so excited to talk about this. I love oh, this yes. book so much. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. And I understand you both love it as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think we'll at, hopefully at some point do a whole episode dedicated Completely. to the Phantom Tollbooth. What was it? What was it about the Phantom Tollbooth that really oh. spoke to you? Oh my goodness, here it is. I'm cuddling it now as I speak to you. This oh, is my an annotated. You have an annotated Phantom Tollbooth. So worth getting. Oh, okay. Gosh. Fabulous. What did I love about the Phantom Tollbooth? Everything. So it's so joyous. It's so hilarious. It's so wise. It's so kind. It's so completely beautiful. The writing, the illustrations are out of this world. They are just magnificent. I was just looking at it earlier today and it, I read it every couple of years and every time I read it, I find a new slice of wisdom. You know, things like jumping into the sea of knowledge and you come out dry. Uh, <laughs> things like, oh, I don't know, so many things. The great Cromer who conducts the morning not through sound, but through colour. He's got his orchestra of colour. The sound keeper who um, steals, collects all the sounds in her fortress because there's too much noise in the world. And even the bit, I don't know if you remember, there's the bit where they, they there's a story about the city of illusion, the city of illusions that started off as the city of reality. Now, The Phantom Tollbooth was written in 1961. And in this story, people live in this, big city with you know sight sound smells all around them and they really enjoy living there but they get busier and busier and life becomes more and more frenetic and as it does they stop looking around them and they start looking down because they have to get from a to b they have to get to their work as quickly as possible because there's so much to do so they stop looking around them and as they stop the world begins to disappear around them so actually the city fades and they end up with the city of illusions. So there's no city there. And I thought that is so prophetic of the internet, of virtual reality. That's the way we appear to be going. Yes, yeah. <laughs> you know? I never thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, I just, there's yeah. so many brilliant, I, that book gave me so much joy as a child. And I remember, I still remember how I felt when I read, you know, the character of As As the Underbridged, you know, the king, king yes. As As the Underbridged. When I worked out, the, I, I looked at that and, I, and it took me a second to click what that was. And the jo the absolute bubble of laughter that came up out of me when I just laughed and laughed and laughed at how funny that was. And it was just when, <laughs> when I was trying to explain it to my parents and they, they didn't really get it. You know, they were like, yeah, <laughs> and, uh, it, it just it was just so much fun. And I just working through all the different puzzles in the story, whether they were you know the, the mathematician with his mathematical puzzles or or the, the linguistic puns and I just it just gives yes. me so much it's just such a joyous book that's I, the I just, word isn't oh, it for it that is. book yes. it is joy yes, it like is. that book is just full of joy and it just wants to put joy out into the world and into yeah, completely people. completely yeah. it's actually really when I look back on it why I became a writer that that book on its own because it wasn't I mean I wouldn't ever you know dream of being able to write anything like that but but it gave me such joy that is what prompts me to write that is my motivation for writing I want children to feel the joy that I felt on reading that book and other books certainly Roald Dahl books as well many other books but particularly that one and I also realized not that long ago it's really strange it clearly got into my subconscious because I have twins and their names are Rosa and Ruby and I realize that actually they, they are kind of at some level 
well, with hindsight, based on the two princesses, rhyme and reason. Rhyme and reason. <laughs> because Ruby, my daughter Ruby, she is reason. And Rosa is rhyme. So reason is a sort of very deep, wise, quiet uh, princess. And, and um, rhyme is sort of exuberant and joyful and you know full of full of life and love and I realized actually that actually there was something going on there with the naming of my daughters and I had no idea at the time so it really it really went very deep that book marvelous and my favorite line in the whole book do you remember faintly macabre the not so wicked witch (laughs) spelt w-h-i-c-h not w-i-t-c-h and my favourite line has always been where she meets Milo and he's very the, ma- the main character in the book. And he's frightened of her because he thinks she's a witch, a normal kind of witch, but she's a witch, not a, a witch. witch. Yeah. And um, she says, don't worry, dear, you may call me Aunt Faintly. And I just love that line <laughs> so much. <laughs> It's just, I think I'm not surprised that book made you a writer because one of the things that book does is just show you the wonderful things that you can do with language and how playful you can be with language. Exactly. Yeah, I think as a kid who who loved words, you know, as talking about myself here, when I read that book, it just really showed me how powerful words are. And how how much fun you can have with with I just I I I love a good pun to this day you know and I think it's yes. possibly oh, Norton Norton Juster's fault because I just yes. there's so so many wonderful puns in that book and it just it just oh I'm going to read it again it's been a long time since I read it but I'm going to go down and get it now and read it after we finish speaking because oh, I'm just good. Going, oh <laughs> I'm going to buy it, the annotated version the annotated yes. version that's really it cool. is magnificent it really is we used to live in South Africa and we came across a man who lived beside the road under a tree and he was an artist and he used to carve things in wood and he had a little sign by his sort of little stool there and it said this life was hired out to me to decorate the earth with glee and I thought wow and that's what the phantom toll booth did I love that I'm writing that down isn't that (laughs) lovely beautiful to decorate the earth with glee say it again This life was hired out to me to decorate the earth with glee. I love the idea of hired out. Yeah, there's such humility there, isn't That's there? That's incredible, yeah. Exactly that. It's so humble. And also it helps It helps me to kind of back off a bit and take things a bit more lightly sometimes. You know, so much doesn't matter that we get so, that I get so worked up about. It doesn't matter. The life is short. Life is hired out to us. Let's make it joyful. Let's you know? decorate it with glee. Yes. Wonderful. Wonderful. Absolutely. I love the word glee. <laughs> yeah. Me too. It makes you smile when you're saying it. it? <laughs> it <does. laughs> yes, you have to, don't you? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So that was, a, that was a, that was probably the book that influenced me most. Well, definitely, to be honest. But then others, as I got older as well, I mean, there are a few more. So um, I was thinking of two other books that made a huge impression on me as a teenager were The Tin Drum by Gunter Grass and Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie. So both of those, in a sense, talking earlier about the sort of blurring between fact and fiction, reality and fantasy, I mean, those two books do that magnificently. Um, so The Tin Drum, all about Oscar, the boy who's the, the boy who's born a kind of grown-up baby, so his brain is fully developed and he spends his life, his childhood, um, growing up in the Second World War and trying to disrupt the Nazis by beating his drum 
he has all these magical powers. I absolutely love that book. Fantastic. But it was very interesting because I do wonder how much of that was the translation. I mean, that throws up the whole idea of translation, doesn't it? And the absolutely magnificent skill of being able to translate creatively to, to add um, the same essence of a book and yet to tailor it to a particular language. My goodness, what a skill you know yeah i was at a great talk a few years ago at the children's books ireland conference um i think sarah sarah Ardizone, i think was the name of the the translator who was who was speaking and she she talked exactly about that which i'd never considered before you know the skill of being a translator is you know being conversant in idioms as well and, and kind of the, yes. the everyday language of a country that you you don't just literally translate what what is on the page because that's what i would have assumed you know but you kind of yes. take it and you, you, you divide it up and you say okay this means this and this means that and we'll put them together but to be able to sort of recreate an idiomatic, like an everyday, a, a living, breathing text, you know, in, in the language of the country that you're, or the language that you're translating it into, it's such a skill. And I never, it's, it's I yeah. really, it gave me a renewed appreciation for, for, for brilliant translators. And it's something I've always thought about since when I'm reading a book in translation, like, I wonder how much of this, how much of the magic of this story is the authors, how much of it is the translators. Um, and I never, it never occurred to me before. So I'm glad yes. to talk about translation. It's, it's definitely a thing to, to be aware of. Yeah, it is fascinating. And it tells you so much about the culture as well. It's not just about language, obviously, because I mean, yeah, sure. Yeah, the, the things that people are going to relate to and humour and the, you know, the sort of focus of a society as well, which is so enriching as well. And Midnight's Children, I, have you, do you know Midnight's Children? Yeah, it's a I long it, time ago. I read it in yes, college, I think, me, so I don't remember it very too. well, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I know a criticism of Salman Rushdie is that he gets a bit sort of drunk with words sometimes, but I have to say, I love it. <laughs> I loved it in Midnight's Children. I thought it was magnificent and all the imagery as well, particularly his grandma, Padma, who pickles all the sights and sounds and smells of India into her chutneys, into her pickles, and also the moods as well. So she, you have sort of bad-tempered pickles and all this kind of stuff. I just love it. It's really wonderful. Yeah. Really I love, um, I just love magic realism because yes. I feel like I kind of live, like it just feels really, magical realism as a genre, as a style, feels really natural to me because I feel like it's kind of how I... And having talked to lots of writers, it seems to be how lots of writers live in the world. Like we, we live in a kind of magical realist world. Yes, absolutely. Where those boundaries and between fact and fiction are constantly shifting. Completely. That's right. And, and it's such, and you used the word humility earlier, Susan, and it's such a humble reminder of how little we actually know. Which I think is great. Wouldn't it be boring if we knew everything? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine having nothing left to discover. God, that'd be really sad. <laughs> it really would, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, I'd, maybe another author, if I could mention, is Eva Ibbotson, oh, who I only yeah. came across <gasps> as an Love adult. Yeah, oh, actually, me as well. I never read her as a child, but I do love her. Yeah. 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 And I, I mean, she's a real heroine of mine. I think both in her personal life and in her writing, she manages to convey such a sort of brilliant anger in her work and at, through fantastic storytelling. She's so concerned with social justice, particularly class, the class system. She get, and, and she has this incredible controlled anger when she writes um, that makes it funny and yet very, very biting as well. So I'm, I'm thinking of some of her slightly up, 
stories for slightly older children the dragonfly pool i don't know if you know yeah, that, that, no, one. I've read that one yeah so yeah. there's a character at the beginning who goes to a british public school and the motto for the school is out of my way and yet she's she's so kind with it as well and just the most fantastic storyteller i absolutely love her work and i think her personal history as well because she was uh yeah tell us, she, tell, she us about that. tell us that story yeah, i don't know that story so she, but, but like yeah, she fled Vienna, I think, as a child because she was Jewish and it was just when Hitler was coming to power and she moved to England. So she has had sort of memories of, of living in Vienna and some of her books cover that. Um, but yeah, so then she grew up in England and I think her husband died when she was quite young. And then it, that was when her writing career took off. But the reason I'm interested in that is um, my dad is Jewish, actually, but he was born, he was brought he was born and bred in in the UK, but I often find it quite interesting looking at my family history there because he grew up without many stories in his life. Mm -hmm. I think he grew up in a very quiet home um, and he was 12 when his sister was born because he was born in 1934. So he grew up through the war and his parents, my grandparents were so scared that the Nazis were going to invade England and they didn't want to have another child. So I think that shaped him hugely. And I think I've always been really, really fascinated by that. And for example, he has a memory of when he was about 10, he met somebody in his family called Cousin Betty, who he'd never met before. And she was just introduced, this is your Cousin Betty. And it was only as an adult that he discovered that she was on the kinder transport. So she was a child who'd been put on a train by her parents somewhere in Germany, I'm not sure where, knowing they'd never see her again, brought to the UK and taken in by my dad's family. He didn't know any of that until he was an adult. So I think there was a... Yeah, there's such a disruption of story there, isn't there? Yes, particular exactly history. That. Yeah, I think so. And it shows what fear can do as well to, to, to creativity and to storytelling. And that, again, is one of the huge strengths and powers of story i think that it can it can fight fear it can challenge fear and overcome fear i think that's ben okri said something about um it something about stories conquering fear it can make your heart grow bigger or something like that he's yeah. right yeah yeah like the grinch the grinch exactly <laughs> heart grew three sizes that day <laughs> indeed um, yes. it reminds me of um when hitler stole queen grabbish mm. by, by yes. like Brit judith carr i love that story so much i yes. love her life so much yeah and i didn't realize eva ibbotson had a similar had a similar background because that sounds just like her situation as well they had to yes. flee. was it vienna as well or possibly one anyway they had to flee overnight herself and her mother and her sibling it's just yes. really it's incredible i think it I'm was talking vienna. about the kinder transport is yeah it's just oh. so so moving and so oh gosh i'm so so sorry to your, your, family's, yeah. your family's involvement in, in that. It's terrible. Yeah. And there's another story by Eva Ibbotson, The Abominable. So I don't know if you've come across that. I don't know that, that one, actually. No. no. So that was published posthumously about a family of yetis who have to flee their Himalayan mountain. Oh. <laughs> um, I can't remember why. Oh, because I think tourism is coming to the mountain and they end up in England in a stately home. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Where else would they end up? <laughs> exactly. But hunters are trying to catch them and shoot them. Oh, wow. Or at least, you know, capture them. Yeah. And some some people have said that that is an allegory for um the persecution of the Jews in the Second World War. So and the Holocaust. So 
Yeah, so with all this joyous delight and wonder of children's writing, there are so many powerful, powerful messages that can get across. And when I say messages, I don't mean sort of didactic, you know, finger wagging stuff, but but values is what I mean, really, isn't it? And isn't that part of stories as well, the, 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 the continuation of a culture or the continuation of story of humanity like it's important it's really important not to not to have such a break in a in a in the story of humanity that we lose a sense of who who a people are or who who we are as as a as a, as a human people because those yeah. memories you know yeah like yes. if, if an entire if an entire culture's stories are destroyed or taken from them I mean it just it's it's devastating it's beyond devastating you know it's it's horrific yes. because they can't you know you can't rebuild you can't you know and I'm reminded again of a book that I mentioned on the podcast uh, that a few episodes ago, um, um, The Last Storyteller by Donna Barba Iguera, which is similar. Like, I mean, it's, it's a science fiction story for middle grade, but, um, you know, uh, humanity has to go off in generation ships into space to escape the planet because it's dying. You know, but one girl brings her grandmother's ancient stories, you know, her, her the, quainti, the quaintas, the story, because in America, the book is called The Last Quaintista, like The Last Storyteller in, in Spanish. And it's just these ancient tales of 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 her her culture, and she brings them with her, and they're so important in creating a new culture, a new a new life in space. Um, I just I love that book so much, and I love that. Wow, how it underlines the importance of stories like that. I know they're about joy and they're about connecting kids through happiness, and that's all really really vital. But it, as well as that, it, they're a record of who we are, um, and it's so important to protect yes. and 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 keep that and keep the thread going unbroken as much as possible. You know, so. So much so, and that actually is a that actually is a is is a big theme in Chameleon Dad as well because Connie gets she gets the uh, choice of erasing the sad memory of her father so that she has no recollection of him whatsoever or or holding onto it and she has to make that decision and I really didn't want to come down you know I didn't really want. I really didn't want to say you shouldn't erase sad memories or you should erase sad memories. I wanted to get inside Connie's shoes and see what Connie would do, because I don't think you can generalise about such no. things at all. And that, again, we're circling around stories here. That is the power of storytelling, isn't it? Because you can have a principle, you can have a, a belief and a moral stance on something. And then somebody comes and tells you their story and it blows it out the water. You know, like people have a you know, or political views or something like that, or you think something is right and something is wrong, end of story, but it isn't the end of the story, you know, because somebody tells you their own experience and you, it immediately forces you to look at it from a different viewpoint and consider different sort of angles on it. Definitely. Because the story never ends. There is no such thing as the end of the story, is there? That's right. That's it continues. right. I suppose we're talking about this. We, we started talking about this, but do you see yourself as a, a shaper of stories for future generations? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I've never thought of it like that. I have to say, I've never thought, oh, I'm a, a shaper of stories. I sort of feel that's for other people to decide in a way, I think. I think I have a, a clear goal that I mentioned before, and that is really to bring the joy to other people that I felt reading certain books. And when I say joy, I don't mean that it has to be happy, happy. I mean that deep, it could be a really sad, tragic story. You know, for example, another book I absolutely love is East of Eden by John Steinbeck. I love John Steinbeck's writing. He's so compassionate. And again, such a champion of the underdog like Eva Ibbotson. Um, and 
yeah, I, th there's a kind of joy in, in the storytelling itself, you know, in the story itself brings its own kind of joy and something about resonating with the story or resonating with a character. So whether, yeah, whether I'm a, a shaper of stories, I, I don't really look at it quite that way. I think it's a, sorry, that's a bit of a garbled answer there, but. No, it's great. No, it's great. Yeah. No, because I was really interested in what you were saying about um, a chameleon dad and you didn't want to come down on the side of like, it's good to erase memories or it's bad to erase memories, but you were showing yeah. the story, you were letting the reader into the story of a particular person and yes. watching and, and feeling their response to to that issue for me that was exactly for me that was like the little sparks that that sent off in my brain when you were saying that was like okay this is this is how debbie shapes stories okay right oh that that's interesting yeah yeah so it's really asking questions rather than giving answers you know because how can how can anyone really say it's better not to have a sad memory or a sad experience you know it, it obviously it's so circumstance specific it's each person has their different version of it and it's going to influence people in different ways and actually that was one of my biggest inspirations for the story because it I watched a, a talk by a man a psychiatrist I think he was who volunteered to um, help refugees coming over from Syria. And so he waited on the beach for the boats to come in in Greece and he helped people come off the boats. And he described in this talk how there was a little boy aged about five or six in the arms of his mother. And the mother looked absolutely exhausted, obviously, as she, as she got off the boat. And so this, the speaker went over to her and said, let me take your little boy just for five minutes and you can have a rest. And as he did so, a helicopter flew overhead and the little boy said, what's that? And the man thought to him, the speaker thought to himself, I have five minutes to change, do something to impact this little boy's life and, and do bring something good out of this terrible situation. So he pointed to the helicopter and he said, that helicopter has come to take a lots of pictures of you because you are such a hero because only heroes can cross the sea oh, like you have oh done and get to the other side like you have done and he said in doing that he planted uh an explanation uh, a kind of um rationale in the little boy's amygdala apparently in his brain that would stay he hoped would stay with that little boy so that he could reframe these awful experiences into something that actually helped him in his life. And I guess, you know, if kids can do that and learn to do that, it, it's the most wonderful gift because I, I, I have friends, you know, I have some friends who will sometimes see the negative in things and others who've been through terrible traumas, like people I, people I met in South Africa who grew up in apartheid South Africa who had the most terrible experiences. And yet they are full of hope and full of joy. And then you get people who break a fingernail and it's like the end of the world, you know? <laughs> so what's the difference there? It's how we tell our stories to ourselves, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, yeah. I, I just hope every child, I, it would be my dream that every child would meet a person like that man in your story who would take that time to, yes. to plant that seed of, you know, you are amazing and that would change their whole life. I just think if everybody had that opportunity as a child, how much, how much more wonderful the world would be, you know, all the yes. pain that's caused by people growing up, not hearing that kind of message or not ever having that experience of meeting an adult 
a trusted adult or anybody in their life who who gives them the power of telling their own story in a new way <laughs> isn't it you know Absolutely. to sort of say you are fantastic and the world is amazing and you're going to be brilliant you know I just think yes. as, as as authors even though I know people have interpreted this question when we kind of wrote the questions we didn't intend it to mean you know do you see yourself as being super super important to me like look at you you're shaping stories for future readers <laughs> how cool are you we don't, we don't really mean it like that it's more like do you do you have in your heart this sense that I hope something I say in any of my work in any part of my work will resonate with a kid will help them will change their life will you know that's I think that's the hope we all have as children's writers isn't it that's something we say will yes. impact positively on the life of somebody who might read it or see it you know and I think that's really you know that's that's the hope that carries me through anyway you know absolutely beautifully put yeah, and I don't know if you know the writer, Mac Barnett. He actually came to the uh, CBI conference a good few years ago anyway, and he said something wonderful. He, apparently, he comes from a long line of paediatricians. So his grandfather was a paediatrician. His father was a paediatrician. His great-grandfather was a paediatrician. <laughs> and they were a little dismayed when he said he was going to be a children's writer. A children's writer. He, turned, <laughs> he turned around to them and said, I am a paediatrician of the soul. Oh, oh I love that. <laughs> Just I what you're that. saying there. Yeah, that is exactly it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's a, what a lovely description of children's writing. Pediatrician of, of, of the soul. Gorgeous. In my notes. Gorgeous. So when we're all sitting there tearing our hair out <laughs> over the right word, <laughs> <laughs> we have to remember Remember what we're really doing here. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's right. And uh, as we're coming close to the end of our our interview even though I wish we could speak forever because this has been so much so much fun and so rewarding for me um uh, I guess we have to ask the cheeky question Debbie of uh, what's next from you in terms of any projects you might have upcoming if you can talk about them uh, without getting in trouble yeah. with our publisher sure <laughs> no delighted to well I've actually just finished a book it's Brilliant. about yetis and climate change Ooh, and I, I love it I love it I sent it on to the um, publisher. I do love a good Yeti, I have mm -hmm. to say. Probably have you read, by Eva Ibbotson. Have yeah. you read a book called The uh, the International Yeti Collective? I <laughs> no, I haven't. Paul, oh my God, the name of the author. Uh, Katie Riddell is the illustrator and I think Paul Mason is the edit, is the author. But oh. they're so good. The International Yeti Collective and there's, there's a sequel which is a similar title, but I forget the name of the sequel. They're really good. And if you're into Yeti stories that have any kind of a climate change feel, I recommend. Sounds absolutely <laughs> fantastic. Can't wait for for your new one. Definitely get those. That's brilliant. So definitely that. But also, I mean, I love sort of workshopping with kids and doing projects. I do a lot of sort of projects and stuff. And particularly with, um, I I do like sort of working with refugees and people in direct provision and that kind of thing. Kids kind of on the edge. I that's what I'm interested in more than the mainstream sort of stuff do you know what I mean so yeah, if I go yeah. into a classroom and there's really confident articulate you know wide readers all this kind of thing that's great and that's super but I kind of feel that they're catered for so it's the it's the ones sitting around the edge who who are much more much less confident much more nervous you know so and I think that thing of being on the edge I think I've always felt a little bit on the edge myself I don't know why maybe we all do I don't know in some in some way or other but I've never felt at the heart of I don't know acceptability or something something like that I love 
yeah so I've always felt a bit on the edge and I and I really love those kids as well so I, I think I'm, that's I'm the best place to be though isn't it at the edge of acceptability <laughs> maybe <laughs> that's where we should we should <laughs> all hang out the best yeah, art yeah. comes from the margins for sure yes, the, best, yes. the yeah. best art comes from the margins absolutely that's right. and that's where our stories come from as well isn't yeah. it? in the yeah. brain yeah <laughs> for sure yeah, well, yeah. I think we're we're going to have to wrap things up, which is which is depressing. Very sad. I've had so Aww. much fun, and we have talked about so many amazing books. Brilliant, um, including 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 the Phantom Toll Booth, which I know is so dear to me and and to Susan as well. But I I'm hope so that um, yeah, I, it's it's been such a pleasure, and uh, uh, I mean to talk to somebody who not only writes books for kids that are so much fun, um, but to talk to somebody who not only writes such excellent books for kids, but also who does such an amount of good work. You know, who does who brings so much of I mean so much of herself and so much of your your talents like to, to people who who might not necessarily ever meet an author meet an artist meet any kind of creator uh people who really need uh to hear the power of stories and who really need to hear how important it is that their story is told and heard and and cherished by somebody you know that's that's so important um it's it's truly been an honor and a pleasure to talk to you today it's, and as well as being loads of fun uh, I'm feeling extremely inspired. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, personally and professionally. Yeah. <laughs> so, thank you. Well, it's so been much. absolutely wonderful for me as well. Thank you so much. A really, really You're great conversation. So, thank welcome. you. Um, it's great. So, uh, we've been, as we say, we've been honored today on Story Shape podcast to talk to Debbie Thomas. And if you really, really uh, enjoyed this episode, which I hope you have, because uh, because it's been brilliant, frankly, um, uh, make sure and tell everybody uh, to subscribe to us. And also, if you could take two seconds to to like um, and review us um, somewhere, that would be great. Wherever you get your podcasts, um, every every new ear we get on the podcast is a, is a, is a, a victory for Susan and me. We're really really hoping that we reach more 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 listeners, um, that we can grow the podcast um, every week. So thanks so much again for tuning in um, and thanks a million uh, to Debbie for being with us today. Um, but for now, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me <laughs> and it's goodbye from it's goodbye from me. <laughs> I wasn't sure whether to chip in there. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. It's been brilliant. You're welcome. You're welcome. So until next week, everybody, we'll we'll take it. Take a break from you for until, until next week. Uh, take care, everybody. Bye bye. 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 You have been listening to Story Shaped with Susan Cahill and Sinead O'Hart. Follow us on Twitter at Story Shaped Pod. And don't forget to subscribe on the streaming service of your choice so that you never miss an episode. Music by Tony Betts. Mm-hmm.